you could imagine a pastor in a sermon to stage one people opening up a text and saying, you know, there are three different understandings of how to, uh, of interpreting this verse. Let me share all three of them. And you share the first one and you do it fairly and you do it honestly. And, and then you, you do the second one, you do it fairly, you do it honestly, you do the third one, you do it fairly. And then you finish and everybody's waiting for you to tell them what's the right one. Um, and if you don't, they're going to be really upset because that's the game that in stage one, I need to know which is the right one. So yeah. you, so you don't just leave them hanging, but you say to them something like this. Um, I'll be happy to tell you which of these I think is most convincing uh, and why, but I need you to know that if you uh, take, I, I'm going to tell you that option three, I think is the best option. Here's why. But if you choose option one or option two, I, I respect you. And I understand many good Christians think that way. And if you take those options, I expect you to show the same respect to me. Now, yeah. You understand that's yeah. clear. It's authoritative. It's not authoritarian. Authoritarian right. is there's only one right way to think and it's mine, mm-hmm. but it's authoritative and, and it keeps the rules clear, but it gives people permission to not have to choose between two, yeah. <laughs> to choose between three and to not reject anyone who doesn't see it. Podcast. My name is Glenn, Glenn Siepert, and I am your host. And this is episode number 132, and it's my conversation with Brian McLaren. So Brian has just released a brand new book called Faith After Doubt. My advice to you is that you hit pause, you go open up your Amazon app, you type in Faith After Doubt, Brian McLaren, and you purchase the book. This is a very good investment of your 25-ish dollars that this book will cost you. Uh, it is not an it's not a quick read. It's an easy read, but not a quick read because it's jam-packed with so much stuff that's going to get your brain churning, get your heart churning, and is really going to be a companion for you uh, on your faith journey. And I think as you hear our conversation, you'll understand more uh, about what that means. But really good stuff coming up. I don't want to give anything away, uh, but just get ready for a really good 45-ish minutes coming up here in uh, just just a couple of, of minutes. Uh, a few things really quick. Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially so anywhere from three dollars a month to twenty dollars a month every tier gets its own reward if the whole monthly system isn't your thing and you're like yeah i like your podcast i like the stuff you put out i don't want to give money every month no sweat i wouldn't want to do that either i don't really like those monthly things either Uh, some people do some people don't so i totally get that we have another option Uh, buymeacoffee.com slash what if project. So maybe you listen to this episode and you're like, 
dang, that's a really, this really helped me. I kind of wish I could take Glenn out for coffee and we could just sit in Starbucks and we could talk about it. Uh, maybe when the pandemic is over and if you live somewhat close to me, we can actually do that. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, but in the meantime, you can go to buymecoffee.com slash whatifproject and drop $5, which is like the price of a latte, uh, $10, the price of a latte and a, I don't know, a, a, a biscuit of some sort at Starbucks. Do they have biscuits? I don't know. Uh, croissants, anything, sandwich, something like that. Uh, but yeah, so buymeacoffee.com slash whatifproject is a place to make like a one-time donation. This blog post really hit me. Uh, this episode really touched me, and I kind of just want to toss $5 at it. You can do that, uh, buymeacoffee.com slash whatifproject. I'll put the links to those in the show notes. Also, the Heretic Shop. There's some new designs up there for, for hoodies. We're in hoodie season, obviously, with the, the coolness of the winter has come in. Uh, we're all looking forward to spring. I know I am. I'm not the biggest fan of winter, but I do like a good hoodie. And so there are some new hoodies there, some new designs. So head over there, check it out. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, the Heretic Shop. The The URL is kind of long. So if you just go to whatifproject.net, click on store, uh, it will bring you right to the shop. Special music today is from my friend before Jane. He's one of my my good friend, I've known him for a long time since he was a, a little kid. Uh, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a long time, and uh, I've watched him grow into a very fine uh, young man, and he's doing really, really good things in the world with his music. He's very passionate, very gifted, and um, I love sharing his music with you. So I head over to Apple Music, Spotify, look up Before Jane, download it, share it, uh, pass it around, and show him some love. So all of that to say, this is episode number 132. This is our very, this is our second uh, episode of season four and our very first interview of 2021 with Brian McLaren. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're sitting down with our friend Brian McLaren to talk about his new book, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What to Do About It. So, uh, Brian, my friend, welcome back. Happy New Year. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Happy New Year to you. It's great to be back. And uh, I just want to say I am so impressed by the good work that podcasters like you are doing so many people are finding a safe place to listen in on important conversations. Mm. So, so keep up the good work. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. And you have definitely been a, a strong voice in my life through your books and uh, personally. So thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks. So let's jump right in because I have a ton of questions for you <laughs> after reading right. your book. And uh, first of all, uh, the book, maybe talk to us a little bit about your target audience? Like, who is this book for? Uh, why did you write it? Whose hands do you hope it falls into? Sure. Well, as you know, I was a pastor for 24 years. And mm. 
um, through the years as a pastor, I had so many people come to me and tell me, look, I'm not sure I believe this anymore. I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. I mean, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I'm glad I was the kind of pastor that people would be honest with. But I had questions of my own and issues of my own. And sometimes I, I say that people would leave my office with my best answers and I would be left with their best questions. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I realized from my own experience and experience of so many other people that this reality of doubt is, is uh, I think it's, it's like a rising sea level, you know, uh, or like an avalanche that's happening. Mm. Um, and I think the last couple of years have intensified it, uh, you know, watching religious leaders uh, reverse everything that they said they stood for yeah. in American politics. And, and, you know, there are parallel things happening in Mexico and Brazil and uh, Poland and, you know, so many places around the world where people are having huge second thoughts about everything that they were taught. And, and, and that's true among Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox. I mean, you think about uh, Catholic folks with what's happened with the pedophilia scandals uh, here, I think one of the best popes in history is, is uh, uh, you know, is leading the church and there are people trying to delegitimize him at every turn. Mm. So there are all kinds of reasons why people's faith uh, needs, they, they, they're, they're struggling and they need some help. And so that's why I wrote the book. And it's a lot of, too, you would think sometimes, I think we think it's people who struggle with their faith or people who are not in positions of church leadership, but a lot of times it's people in leadership who struggle and have nobody to talk to. It's so, so true. I, I have to be careful with confidences here, hmm. but some years ago I received a, a, a call from, or a, a me email message from an official at the Vatican. And here I am a Protestant guy. Hmm. Uh, and he had read one of my books that have been translated into Italy. And he, it was just such a tender thing. He said to me, you know, because of where I work, I don't have many people I can talk to freely about my own questions. And I yeah. wondered if we could enter into that kind of conversation. So over a couple of months, um, he had deep and legitimate theological questions. Hmm. Uh, and of course, add to those the ecclesiological questions that many people have when they kind of live behind the curtain in the world of religion. Yeah, it, it's, it's not an easy time to be clergy. Yeah. Uh, again, being careful with confidence, but I asked somebody who reached out to me and they, you know, they're in a position of church leadership and they just said, I've got so many questions and I have so many doubts, but yet I feel like I have to have all the answers on Sunday morning. Yeah. That's a very scary place to be. Yeah. Oh man. You know, you're, you, as soon as you said that it brought to mind a really redemptive moment in my life. I was part of this little uh, Christian community uh, right around the time I was finishing high school. So I was, I kind of came up in the Jesus movement. So this is, mm. there are a lot of experiments in community and the leader of our community. One morning we had a morning gathering and I would say there were maybe 20, 25 of us in the room. And, and he said, um, he said, look, I don't know how mature we are yet as a community, but I hope you're mature enough for me to tell you this. My wife and I have been fighting for a couple of days and I feel like hell today and I have mm. nothing to share and I'm barely hanging on myself. And, and I will, that moment sort of just, it comes back to me now because of his honesty and because he didn't cover up and because he didn't have a nice, neat fix on it. And I just, I think there are relatively few people who have that kind of either courage or freedom uh, to speak out like that.
Yeah, that's for sure. So the place I want to, I was hoping to kind of touch down a bit in our conversation is really uh, the piece that makes up the bulk of the book, which is where you talk about the stages of faith development. So uh, maybe we obviously don't want to give away all the pearls of wisdom in your book, but maybe um, we could begin by giving us like a brief overview of what these stages are uh, and why they're important. And then maybe we can drill down a little bit into some questions that people might have, questions I definitely have uh, that revolve around them. Okay. So let me first say, uh, Glenn, that, uh, you know, there's a long history of talking about stages, even mm-hmm. uh, in, the, uh, in the scriptures, you think of Jesus' parable of the four kinds of soil. Well, they talk about people at four different stages at four different places mm-hmm. in, their, in their spiritual uh, development. Or you think about in the New Testament, uh, in the, the uh, epistles of John, he, he, the writer talks about people who are like children and people who are like mature men and people who are like elders. So we have these ideas of stages deeply rooted. And in, in recent centuries, there've been a whole range of people from Sigmund Freud and Jean Piaget and psych- psychiatry and psychology to a whole lot of interest in spiritual development, mm. um, stages of spiritual development. And, you know, there are corresponding, uh, corresponding literature in the world of business to talk about maturity and leadership development, m- many different uh, spheres, as well as a whole new area called macro history, where we look at not only stages of individual development, but stages of development of civilizations and communities. Mm. So I've been interested in these, and I synthesize them into four very simple stages. And I'll just say them super simply, and you know, you can uh, uh, bear down on it. Sure, sure. But um, basically four stages, simplicity, mm-hmm. complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Mm. Um, and if, if you want to think about it like this, simplicity is dualism. It's the work of, of putting things in two categories, good, evil, us, them, friend, enemy, strange, stranger, neighbor, dangerous, safe, all those kinds of uh, dualisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's an important part of growth. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of religious communities tell people to be a good Christian or Jew or Muslim or whatever, you have to stay in stage one. That's all there is. Yeah. Stage one is what religion is for a lot of people. And then more and more people move into stage two, which I would call pragmatism. It's where we start pragmatically engaging with the different games that we have to play in life. We find out that, that in different spheres of life, there are different sets of rules. And so we start to master the different rules. And that's a big difference than that dualism of stage one. Now we're have to, we're, we're having to, uh, develop new skills for a more complex world. And, and a lot of people stay there. And frankly, here in America, I think in the religious world, um, we've had, a, 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 in some ways, the megachurch phenomenon is a stage one moving into stage two phenomenon for most people. Yeah. Um, then more and more of us are hitting stage three. And stage three perplexity happens if we call uh, stage one uh, dualism and stage two pragmatism, we could call stage three relativism or skepticism, where we start seeing through things that Mm. those stage one leaders who told us what was right and wrong, they start doing and saying some terrible things. Those stage two leaders who told us the five steps to marital success, they get divorced or they have an affair. And we think, gosh, his five steps didn't work for him so well. Right. (laughs) And and so uh, perplexity is coping with that reality, not Mm. sweeping it under the carpet, not denying it, but facing it squarely. And a lot of people stay there for the rest of their lives. I think what um, in many ways my book is, is, is uh, in some ways targeted or aimed toward those people, yeah. because those are the people who are feeling the pain of doubting 
almost everything. Yeah. And they're the kind of people who'd say, you know what, I, I, I'm willing to invest several hours in reading a book and engaging with this because I need help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for those folks, um, my kind of good news is that I think there, that there's a way that we integrate those first three stages into a larger space I call harmony, where we, we learn to see things whole and we learn to see with love and we understand the interconnectedness of all things. And we understand that people go through stages. Yeah, <laughs> we don't right. condemn and hate them for being where they are. Yeah. And you kind of look back on the stages and realize that you used to be at a previous stage and it kind of makes it easier to maybe have grace on somebody else who's at that earlier stage. Exactly right. And you know, that, that that's easy to say, but for example- stage, <laughs> Very hard stage, to do. <laughs> it is hard to do. And stage two people generally- don't feel that way about stage one people hmm. and stage three people definitely don't feel that way about <laughs> right. stage three people because they're the problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah. But then when we say, you know what, the problem isn't just them. The problem is also me that it, we're facing shared human problems. That's and right. when we try to embrace that larger reality, I think that's what helps us move into uh, that fourth stage. Yeah. Now in the book, you say that you talk about how doubt is the passageway from one stage to the next. So kind of like I make my way through the stage forever many years or, or decades or whatever, then a season of doubt comes along and that sort of ushers me into, or can be, I think you say like the birth canal into the next stage. So maybe talk to us more about, about that, because I think pretty much every listener of the podcast is in a place of, of doubting something uh, yes. in regards to their life or their faith. And so does that mean that like, we're all sort of on the verge of stepping into some new stage of faith, like is the darkness that often feels like doubt or the doubt that often feels like darkness, is that actually a, yeah. a light to the end of the tunnel? So let me use two analogies. Uh, one that I think is close to your heart. Um, when, whenever, you know, those of us who've been parents, we, we remember when our children were, were very small, they would go through really cranky phases. And, and I think they're cranky. <laughs> no, phases. they're never cranky. Brian. Never, never. <laughs> never. <laughs> But, but when you think, so a kid who's, who rolled over once or twice and she, she wants to roll over, but she can't remember how or whatever, right. you know, it's frustrating. And then she gets mm. really good at rolling over and then she figures out how to get up on all fours and then she falls. It, the, w- learning any new skill brings frustration. And when you're trying to start something, very often there are failures and frustrations. And in some ways, you only want to learn a new skill when you get a little bit bored with the old school, with the old skill, right? Mm. Rolling over is not as good enough anymore. I need to be up on my hands and knees, or then I need to crawl, or then I need to stand, or then I need to walk. Um, Or you could think of it like this. If stage one is like checkers, you can grow a lot as a checker player, right? You you can uh, be a really bad checker player and grow (laughs) a lot. But when you say, I'm bored with checkers. I want to learn chess. It, that, that sense that I'm done with checkers. There's nothing more for it to teach me. I, I've lost interest. I'm ready for a bigger challenge. That would be like the period of doubt that brings you into a new, uh, a whole new game, right? A yeah. whole new, whole new way of living. Hmm. And, um, and I, I look back on my own spiritual life and when I was happily in stage one, I had my notebook out and I was taking all the notes and I was trying to figure out who the good guys were and the bad guys were. Mm. And I wasn't really plagued by too many doubts. I mean, when I, when I was, I knew what to do about it. Yeah. Find the authority figure I trust and get them to tell me what to do. Um, and similarly in stage two. 
And, but I think when people run out of runway at the end of stage two, that's when a crisis hits. And that's when I'm sad to say there are so few churches that are able to help. There are some, thank God, there are more than there yeah, used to be. Yeah. But I'll tell you, that's one of the places where podcasts are so important. Mm. And, and I hope good books, but podcasts really create this little private sanctuary while, where someone's in their car listening you know, to this conversation or they're working out and they have their earphones in and they can, they can, they're given permission to, to question and think new thoughts. Yeah, that's so good. Could you give us like a, maybe a concrete example, whether it's from your own life or maybe, um, you know, someone's story that you can keep kind of evasive, but what does it look like for somebody to have that, have a doubt arise that literally moves them from one stage to another? Like, can you yeah. think of a concrete example? Uh, well, I, I would, I would say it's probably rare that it's one single event mm. unless it's a traumatic event. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are a whole lot of people who build their lives around a faith community, you know, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, whatever. Yeah. And then when the leader has some sort of gross moral failing, maybe the leader makes a sexual harassment move toward them or towards someone they love or some big scandal breaks out. That kind of traumatic experience for a lot of people is what shoves them out of a stage. They will mm. never be a trusting stage one person again. Mm. And, and then in their stage two work might be, I've got to figure out how to fix this. I've got to figure out what went wrong. I've got to make sure that I'm never in that situation again. And then maybe something similar happens again, or maybe they become a pastor or leader themselves. And they're the one whose life, whose life falls apart. Hmm. And terrible. That, that, that could be a one-time experience that throws a person uh, into stage three. Um, but it also could be an issue or a question. Look, I, I'll, I'll just be frank. I think what the church has done in America, the majority of the white evangelical, Catholic, and even significant percentage of the white mainline Protestant church, the way it has jumped in bed with Donald Trump mm. has pushed a lot of people. It's accelerated their discontent. Yeah. They just say, this thing has lost credibility with mm. me. And I don't trust these people anymore. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody about that the other day about how it's like the, the church has gotten into bed almost with um, the, the, the empire and has given birth to a monster. Like it's just, <laughs> yes. it's something that's just like so unlike anything that Jesus taught and like how so many can be so blind to that is just so hard for me to understand sometimes. Yeah. And of course, yeah. uh, when you study church history, the sad truth is you find the more you study uh, especially if you get out of the sort of prescribed lanes where people are just praising heroes, you find that, oh man, this sort of thing has happened so many times in the past. Yeah. That's what pushes a lot of people into that stage of perplexity. And they just mm. say, I'm done with the whole thing. Yep. And, um, and I'm so sympathetic. I totally understand that. I, mm. I, to some degree, I've been there. But the thing I also realize is that once you say, I'm done with Christianity, um, well, then you have to get up the next day and think, how am I going to live? And then you find out that this isn't just a problem in Christianity. It's a problem in humanity. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you an example. Um, so there's huge amounts of illegal activity happening out in the open right now uh, in relation to the election. And um, lots and lots of lawyers are doing things that are unethical. And uh, right. the question is, 
will the bar association uh, decide to take action on these lawyers and some of them in Congress, because many mm. con Congress people are lawyers, or will they let it slide? Well, at that moment, you realize, why would they let it slide? Because of money, because of power, because of fear. And then suddenly you start to have doubts about your whole profession if you're a lawyer. Right. So these, these problems follow us everywhere. There's, it's not just the world of religion yeah. <laughs> that, that, that we have to face these very similar stages. Every facet of society, right? Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, and when you see it in that way, you realize, oh, this is a, well, as I say in the book, it's not just a religion, religion problem. It's a human, a problem. human problem. Yeah. And that's why there is remarkable. I've been interested to see how similar the religious and non-religious theorists are when they talk about human development, yeah. you know, each one uses different names and labels for the stages, but there's mm. remarkable synergy and resonance between them. So as I read your book, I tried, I tried to plot my own life in these stages and I was yes. hoping that I could maybe talk it through with you right here on the podcast, if that's okay. I'd love to hear that. Okay, cool. So looking back, I, I was definitely like a stage one, you know, this or that, black or white, right or wrong, a stage one student in a private Christian school where I went to from the fourth through 12th grades. Yes. Um, in our town right now, it's, it's probably considered like a, a mega church. And so the school was associated with the church, uh, super conservative uh, evangelical church. So I was brought up like creationism is right, evolution's wrong, believe in Jesus, heaven, don't believe in, in hell. So lots of dichotomies. And I was in that stage, I would say, probably through Bible college and into maybe three weeks of seminary yes. <laughs> where, where I entered into, and then I think I spent a, a large part of my life in what I think was stage two, because I had a, I was really blessed to have a professor uh, in the MDiv program who uh, was my hermeneutics professor. And he really pushed our class to see like the Bible and think about the Bible apart from the terms like inerrancy, infallibility, uh, the word of God that so many of us were, were raised with. And he would like pose these questions to us in class, like very Rob Bell-like and then never really answer them. <laughs> he would just yes. kind of toss out these questions and we would discuss them amongst ourselves and in small groups or like in the larger class with the professor. I remember like one time these two students got into such an argument that one of them got up and left the class. I don't know if he ever came back, but he just <laughs> left the class and went home. And I remember being like really disoriented in this class because like really stage one was all I knew. Like there was right, there was wrong, there was biblical, there was unbiblical, and there was absolutely no wiggle room in between. And so I remember feeling disoriented, but like at the same time, as I reflect on it, it was very liberating. And yes. maybe like, like I was actually somewhat free to explore and to like, to like think and pursue different understandings of God. And of course I was doing, it, I didn't realize it then, but looking back, like I was doing it within the boundaries that the institution set up for me. And I wasn't truly free. Like there, there was a fence, but it was maybe invisible and it would shock me if I got too close to the edge. Yes, but yes, like at, yes. at the time it felt like really liberating from what I was used to. And then I think like the entrance for me into stage three, which is, I would say is probably still where I am today came about three years ago when my daughter was born and we were talking about kids earlier, but like she was in a tank in the NICU and yes. I sat there staring at her as she slept. And I had my, my hand like in this little, 
opening in the tank and this little hand wrapped around my finger while she slept. Mm. I began to have like this literal faith crisis, like right in the middle of the NICU as I'm surrounded by all these babies, I'm staring at my own. And I began to have like all these doubts that just flooded me about theologies that I always took for granted, like original sin. I remember thinking like, if God is here with me right now and looking at my daughter in this tank and thinking that she's marred with some kind of sin nature, I don't want anything to do with that God. Yes. But yet that was a doctrine that I held so closely for so long. Yes. And like, I'm having this crisis in this room and that sort of, I think, opened up that deconstruction, that perplexity door that kind of kicked me into stage three where I am today. So I'm wondering, as I tell you like that short version of my story, does that make sense? Does it sound like I'm applying these stages correctly? Oh my goodness. I can't think of anything more uh, uh, perfect uh, narrative uh, than that. Mm. First, you know, um, my friend uh, Richard Rohr, um, often says the only the things that nudge us out of a stage are great pain or great love, mm. and um, and I I like to add to that, and I think he would agree. Uh, a great amount of travel, cross cultural travel, sort of savvy travel, um, mm. and also great education. Mm. So when you went to seminary and you had a great educator who invited you into stage two and and made the exploration of the complexity of the world and the complexity of theology. He made that exciting and gave you a feeling like he was giving you tools to study and learn things on your own. I couldn't think of a better description of that crossing into stage two. And it was painful because you, you realize you're no longer playing checkers the way your, your, uh, you know, church and Christian school taught you. You're, you're you're being given a much broader field of play, so to speak. Um, You know, as I reflect on my own experience, I'm thinking about this because one of my earliest mentors is in his last days of life with Alzheimer's now. And Mm. he had, he's relatively young for Alzheimer's, but it's hit him very fast. And he's, Mm. his wife just called me the other day to say that, you know, it's his last days and she was able to hold up the phone to his ear. But when, when I was a stage one kid and I was part of the Jesus movement and our little Jesus people group was being torn apart by charismatic versus non-charismatic. Mm. So I went to this guy who wasn't yet my mentor, but this is one of the reasons he became a mentor. And I said, Dave is, is speaking in tongues, right or wrong, right? Mm. There's the, is it <laughs> right. biblical or unbiblical? <laughs> yeah. And I'll never forget. I can picture the look on his face. And he says to me, well, Brian, I've never spoken in tongues. Um, but I have no way to know whether it's right or wrong. Well, first of all, to have somebody I respect say, I don't know, mm. was stunning. But yeah. then he said to me, this is the classic stage two portal. He said, but the way I see it, if, if God, the, the scripture says that God wants to give good gifts to God's children. Um, so I just say, God, give me all you all you got. If you want me to speak in tongues, he says, I'll sing like a Tweety bird. And, um <laughs> Uh, and I remember he, instead of giving me a right or wrong answer, he gave me a technique, a method. And I think that's what you got in seminary. At, yeah. But then that description of being in the NICU, we, talk about great love. Mm. Um, you, you're, you're overcome with a bigger love and a love of a different caliber than you've ever felt in your life. Yeah. And that love took you to a place where your old theological framework made no sense. Yeah, uh, And I, I must say, 
in that light, you think of Jesus' words about, he says, if you fathers, you know, you, you fathers, you're not, you know, you're not so great, but you know how to give good <laughs> gifts to your children. Right. Do you think your, your father in heaven will be worse than you? <laughs> right. And, and you, you, you hold that, that picture of your little uh, infant's hand around your finger and you think the love that you felt at that moment, you said, God would not behave as badly toward human beings as I've been taught that he would. The yeah. love that I feel makes that impossible. And that wasn't just a matter of you questioning one belief. At that moment, an entire system of belief comes into question. And that's, to me, that's the mark of stage three. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was honestly like it was, like now it's, you know, feels so liberating. But I remember in that moment, I was absolutely horrified because yes. I'm like, I've gone through all those years of private Christian school, four years of Bible college, three years of a master's. I've pastored churches. Now I was like two years into a doctoral program. And I'm like, I'm having all of these questions right now. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what to do, but it just felt like, like, I was like, if this is my life's work, if this is what I'm dedicating my life to, I have no choice but to grapple with this. I couldn't agree with you more. And, yeah. and, and, here, and here's the sad thing. Imagine if all of your teachers helping you when you had to do that stage one work of right and wrong, because that there is a certain sense that's essential work, right? Sure. But imagine yeah. if the, the people who taught you at that stage taught you with the mentality of your seminary professor. Hmm. Um, because they could have, but they, they maybe didn't, they weren't there themselves or they didn't know they were allowed to. Yeah. Um, I was, it's, <laughs> I was asked to speak. Uh, this was before COVID when I was still traveling and I don't want to again, violate any privacies, but I was asked <laughs> to speak at a very famous, very highly respected uh, private Christian school hmm. in, in the Midwest. And you could tell there were about five teachers there who were who understood that stage one was not going to work for their students forever, hmm. and uh, and so they had invited me to come and speak to some of their classes. Hmm. Well, then there was another teacher there, who was like the stage one policeman, right, <laughs> the gatekeeper. Yeah. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and he went after me, and I could tell oh. now he's going to go after them. And right. oh my goodness, you could just feel it the drama when i was reading your book and i was thinking about these stages in my life actually i reached out to that professor for my hermeneutics class and i haven't talked to him i took that class in 2000 well, maybe 2006 so it's been a long time since i talked to him and he oh. he had actually assigned one of your books uh, uh generous orthodoxy for one of his classes so he was the first one to introduce me uh to your work but i reached out to him and i I just said, like, I, I'm looking back over my life and I'm thinking about so many different things and I'm in a much different place than I was back then. And I said, I just wanted to, to thank you because you were one of the first people to really open up my eyes to the fact that there's other ways to think about this stuff. And it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback now, but like looking back, I was so frightened as I sat in your classroom oh. and I look now and I'm just so grateful that I had somebody like you who was able to open up those doors for me. So. Oh, that's so great. That yeah. is so great. And yeah. I, I, bet, I bet that meant a lot to him. Yeah, we had a really nice dialogue uh, back and forth in email, and he told me to reach out to him anytime with questions or thoughts, and maybe we'll even try to get him on the on the podcast. I think that would be a lot of fun. So That would be so great. That would yeah. be so great. Well, yeah. people like that are heroes, and they are yeah. worth much in our spiritual life. And frankly, uh, Glenn, 
I think that's what Jesus struck people as. Yeah. Like he he has authority, but he's not like he's not like our normal religious teachers, you know? Yep. Yep. There's something different about him. He doesn't give you an answer. He asks you a question. He doesn't give you an answer. He tells you some bizarre story. Right. <laughs> it's classic, the education yeah. of Jesus. Yeah. You're looking for a, a solid answer and he tells you this crazy story about some guy out on a field and you're like, what? <laughs> exactly right. right? Yeah. Uh, the other thing that struck me um, is a story you told in the book about a woman uh, named Joelle. Yes. And uh, I might have the story a little bit off, but I'll, I'll do my best to summarize it. But you talk about how she entered into uh, stage three in seminary. Uh, and then when she got out of seminary, she began to pastor a church. And although it was a good experience, I'm sure in some ways, it was also excruciating because the church was made up of stage one and stage two people. And so although they wanted a pastor who had been to seminary and knew all these things, they wanted their pastor to basically just teach them things they already knew to be true. And so I guess the, the question I wanted to ask you is, what, what do you have to say to the Joels who are listening today? Because we have some pastors who listen to the show and some people in other forms of ministry uh, where they need to answer to boards and elders and gatekeepers. And like, what advice do you have for that person who's deep in stage two, maybe even deep in stage three, yet they stand up every Sunday to speak to people in stage one? Like, is there a way to be effective in that setting? Is there a way to find any kind of fulfillment to remain true to yourself? Like what wisdom do you have for that? It's such a great question. But let, first, the first thing I would say is maybe this helps you understand why your job is so hard, you know, mm. um, and just I think people need to be able to look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm not a failure. I'm doing a great job. This is just a really hard job. This yeah. is not easy. Mm. And in fact, your previous story, I think, illustrates how hard it is. Imagine if that seminary class could have at any moment voted to fire that professor. Mm. And imagine the politics that would have happened in the seminary class if that student who walked out because he got mad decided he was gonna find anyone who agreed with him and say, and get them to form a little cabal to get the, the, the professor fired, right? Mm, yep. So this is the problem. You, you're, you're paid to, to teach people, but the question is, are you paid to teach people what they pay to hear or are you, are you called by God to try to help people to, to help people become all that they can be? Yeah. And, and hmm. so in a certain sense, I think just about every pastor in the world has to have a, a pardon the pun, but a come to Jesus talk with themselves hmm. where they say, do I want to be a hireling or a shepherd? Do I want to do this to make the people who pay me happy or, or not. And if we decide we want to be leaders who aren't just there to, to, to tell people what they pay us to tell them, what they want to hear, we, we actually want to be leaders, not just uh, entertainers or, or uh, babysitters. Yeah. Then we have to, that's where Jesus' words about being wise as serpents and innocent as doves comes in. Mm. Uh, you know, a, a serpent has the ability to find its way through the smallest hole, <laughs> the <laughs> smallest crack. Yep. And we have to look for the cracks where there's openness. And, but yeah. we don't do it with a manipulative intent. We do it uh, with the innocence of a dove, with the peacefulness of a dove. And, and so what I would say uh, to begin with is that any pastor who wants to engage in that kind of work should expect it to be hard. And mm. in order to handle how hard it's going to be, 
they need to have a couple of what a mentor, another mentor of mine called non-utilitarian friends. Mm. So people who can't fire them, people who can't, you know, they don't have power over each other. You're friends just because you like each other and you need each other. Sure. And because you need to be able to go in private to those kinds of friends and say, I got, I got the snot beat out of me over the weekend. You know, mm. uh, I've got three people who are trying to get rid of me and they're telling me this and this and this, and you need a friend who'll look you in the eye and say, you're a good man. You're, you know, or, or they might say, yeah, you are a little over the, over the edge. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we need that kind of private support. And sadly, you know, in a, relatively few pastors that I've met have that kind of non-utilitarian uh, soul friend. And if you can't find it just among peers, this is why you pay for a spiritual director and you find a quality mm. spiritual director to go through that stuff. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say um, is that uh, from a posture of, if you understand these stages, if you understand what stage one people need is they need clarity and they mm. need confidence. And so um, then you say, how am I going to help this person grow into stage two because if you're in stage three and you want to bring them to where you are, they're not ready for that yet, right? Mm. You'll be doing them a disservice. That will be a dysfunctional act of leadership on your part to just try to get them where you are because you need some company. Sure, right. <laughs> um, uh, but to say, no, they are at this stage. They need to get to the next stage. How can you do that with confidence and clarity? Mm. Uh, and, and the same with, with the stages. And that's where I would hope, in fact, a huge area where people are involved with stage theory is in the area of education because it, mm. it, you know, we know it in mathematics, someone's learning addition, they're learning counting, then they learn addition, then they learn multiplication, division. You can't jump them to calculus. You, 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 you feed them more and better, new and better skills. And sadly, mm. uh, again, many of our churches, they basically say addition and subtraction, that's God's work. Multiplication division is of the devil. <laughs> and so you, if you, you spend your life, we'll keep you mastering those two basics and that's all there is. Yeah. I think, I think too, I think you make a really good point that, you know, I think a, an effective leader is somebody who is helping move people along different stages of their faith. And maybe being somebody who maybe even introduces that little bit of doubt that you had said that moves people from one stage to the next. And I remember when I was a pastor, that was one of the biggest things that I wrestled with so much, which is one of the reasons why I think I I kind of walked away from the official role of pastor in a church. It's just because like, I remember sitting in my office and writing sermons and having had that hermeneutics class in, in seminary and wanting to think wider and deeper about the Bible and being able to do that to an extent in my sermons, but having so much of like the, the leadership, like the elder board, the deacon board, the people in the denomination be such stage one thinkers that it was so black and white. I remember just thinking like, I just feel like I have to, I have to tell everybody what they already know. And I have yes. to tell everybody what they already believe. And I have no freedom to stand up here and be creative. You know, there's a few people who latch on to that creativity and they, and they love it. But I was like the, the, for lack of a better word, like the abuse that I take behind closed doors from the elder board, because they don't like the different ideas that I present. It's like, it's just not, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's worth the, the agony for me. And I, I don't want to just stand up there and not be true to myself and be true to who I am. And so it was like a real struggle for me. And I feel like that was one of the reasons why I had to let it go. But there's other people that I know of who are in that stage two or stage three, 
and they're preaching the congregation. So are in a stage one or stage two, but they, they do it so well and they enjoy that struggle and they enjoy that wrestling match. And I think that there's some people who are just really wired and maybe even gifted to be that person who stands up in the church and helps people move from one stage to the next. You know, you, you said that so well, I I think, um, if I could give one specific example of Mm. how I think that, that, uh, just, just one example, we could, you know, come up with dozens if we Mm -hmm. had more time, but, um, and I bet your, your seminary professor, uh, did this. You could imagine a pastor in a sermon to stage one people opening up a text and saying, you know, there are three different understandings of how to, uh, of interpreting this verse. Mm let me share all three of them. And you share the first one and you do it fairly and you do it honestly. And, and then you, you do the second one, you do it fairly, you do it honestly, you do the third one, you do it fairly. And then you finish and everybody's waiting for you to tell them what's the right one. Um, and if you don't, they're going to be really upset yeah. because that's the game that in stage one, I need to know which is the right one. So yeah. you, so you don't just leave them hanging, but you say to them something like this. Um, I'll be happy to tell you which of these I think is most convincing uh, and why, but I need you to know that if you uh, take, I'm going to tell you that option three, I think is the best option. Here's why. But if you choose option one or option two, I I respect you. And I understand many good Christians think that way. And if you take those options, I expect you to show the same respect to me. Now you understand that's clear. It's authoritative. It's not authoritarian. Authoritarian right. is there's only one right way to think and it's mine, mm-hmm. but it's authoritative and, and it keeps the rules clear, but it gives people permission to not have to choose between two, but yeah. to choose between three and to not reject anyone who doesn't see it the same way. Yeah. And so funny that you said that because that was actually one of the, that was one of the classes that I think is ingrained in my memory is that he, he broke us up into groups of like two or three people. And we were each assigned to be a particular, I don't know, like time of church history or a particular denomination. We all had the same passage and we had to read the passage through the lens of that particular denomination or that particular type of thinking. And we all came up with obviously different interpretations of the passage. And I remember he said, none of them is, none of them is right. None of them is wrong. <laughs> you know, it's just, that, that, that's just kind of just the way that, you know, you came up with it based upon the experiences that you would have had in your life having come from this particular denomination. That was one of the biggest things that just opened up my eyes is like, of course, like if you give everybody in this room, the same verse and tell them all to put a sermon together about it, they're all going to be different. That was education. That was, yeah. really and, you know, in the terms of these four stages, you know, that teacher was clearly, he was taking us, he was helping you develop a stage three skill, which is mm. a skill of seeing reality from different points of view. And he was inviting you to play the role of a different point of view and see reality from that point of view. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, what's so interesting to me, because as you know, in the book, I I end up making a big deal about a verse from the book of Galatians chapter five, where Paul says what I think is one of the most staggering passages, statements in the entire new Testament. He said, all the things that we argue about, they don't matter at all. Mm. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Yeah. Well, if love is really the point of this thing, then the ability to empathetically enter into someone else's skin, so to speak, and look out through their eyes at the world, that's essential to love. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's part of the skill you were learning there. You were learning right. to see through someone else's, uh, someone else's eyes. That's right. Do you have time for one more question? I, I sure do. Okay. So let me talk, let me ask you about stage four for a second. Um, harmony. Now harmony you said is kind of this deep sense of, of love, which I think hundred percent, that should be our goal. My, my question is, as I was reading your book is how, how do you live every day in stage four harmony and yet maintain a uh, like prophetic voice that is maybe sometimes strongly toned to speak yeah. against injustices of the day. And I ask that because like, I'm, I'm learning, I'm in this place, like I said, I'm maybe three years in stage three and I'm learning to use my voice. And yes. frankly, there are just some things that really yank my chain. <laughs> yes. And if I could be specific, uh, the way that some churches, some worship leaders are gathering people together in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic, putting lives in danger, really seeming not to care, using the Bible and Jesus to justify it. And I've been known to just not hold my tongue when it comes to these things online. And so that's gotten me in trouble sometimes, not just with the conservative crowd, but also the, the more progressive crowd as I'm told that I should be kind and loving and all these different things. And so the point I've tried to make when I get the pushback and the thing that I'm really wrestling with inside as I try to embrace a hopeful shift one day into stage four is how do you be loving and harmonious and still remain passionate and prophetic where you're not as afraid to speak truth to power in ways that might sometimes appear edgy, sharply toned, kind of like Jesus walking in the temple and flipping over some, some tables. Like, what is that balance? What does that look like? Yeah. So one way I could not answer your question is by st starting with the words, well, it's easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think uh, I can only speak as someone who faces exactly the same struggle. <laughs> and can I just say to the degree that you feel that struggle, that is a sign of a person being in stage four. Because when you're in stage three, all you really care about is, is pointing out the hypocrisy and idiocy uh, of, you know, the other person. Yeah. Um, uh, you're in a, a somewhat reactive mode, right? Mm. Um, but now you're saying, hold it. I have to live on the planet with this person. I, hmm. they're, they're my neighbor. I can't throw them away. Mm. So how do I speak the truth that needs to be spoken and not, uh, not throw them away? Now, there's something... I, that's outside my power. I cannot say I'm going to speak my truth in a way that won't upset them. Mm. In fact, if I speak my truth and it's the truth they need, it will upset them. Mm. Um, but how can I do it in a way that doesn't compromise uh, my understanding of them as neighbor and, and, and so on? Mm. Um, and maybe I could just share a, a quick story about this. Sure. Also on my mind uh, for, for a similar reason to the story I shared earlier. Um, I uh, have a neighbor who just moved away and um, he was a, an extremely difficult person. Uh, uh, every time I would see him, he would uh, say racist things. He, would, mm. he, he was one of those people who assumes that everybody agrees with him. Mm. And, um, and he also was irascible and he was ready for a fight at any moment. And so I remember one of our first substantive conversations, he starts insulting Muslims. And I said, Look, man, I said, I got to tell you, I, I could not uh, disagree with you more. I think what you're saying is really unfair. I said, do you know any Muslims? No, I'm just telling you what I've heard. And I said, well, look, mm. I know a lot of Muslims. And I've got to tell you, uh, 
they're wonderful people and they would never talk about you the way you're talking about them. So I was very direct with them, right? And I'd see them again, some other BS, you know, and, and it would just, and it was maddening, but I didn't want to give up because he's my neighbor. And finally, one day he says something uh, uh, insulting. This is when o Obama was still uh, uh, president. And I said, um, I said, why do you hate Obama so much? And he says, not just him. I hate the whole blankety blank government. Mm -hmm. Why do you hate the government so much? And then he goes on to tell me a story of how he was a 19 year old kid who signed up for the army in the Vietnam era. And he was stationed in Saigon and he saw corruption taking place among, uh, you know, his uh, commanding officers. He saw them selling us military supplies to Vietnamese people and putting the money in their pocket. Mm -hmm. And he tried to report it. And then he was threatened that he would be sent on a mission from which he would never return. And he tells me the story and suddenly I saw him in a different light. I yeah. saw this, you know, 75 year old guy, I saw him as a 19 year old kid who was disillusioned and never got over it. Mm -hmm. He believed in the government and it let him down, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and all I can say is, when I came to the point of understanding his story and I saw him in a new light, he, he was still difficult. He was still irascible, but I couldn't hate him. I couldn't throw yeah. him away. Right. Yeah. And, and those words are, are, or that story is pointing to me now because the new neighbors just moved in and he moved away very suddenly. And I asked the new neighbors, do you know why, you know, the previous owner moved? And he said, um, he said, he, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and he has a few mm. months to live. So once again, the person that seemed this bitter, angry person suddenly is a frail person who's going to die. And that being able to see a person in the whole totality of their lives, I think that's one of the ways that helps us not back down, be strong, call a spade a spade, turn over tables when necessary, but do it without hate. Yeah. I think that's powerful is when you realize that just like, it's like you have your own story that made you the way that you are today. Somebody else has their story. I think that when we recognize that we each have a story, it connects us to that person in a, in a powerful way. And so it's not so much that we're separate and I'm above them and I know better than they do, but they have a story. I have a story in that sense where we're one and that we're able to hopefully move forward in some kind of, of harmony. So, so well said. And then yeah. you feel the awesome, almost sacred, dimension of every encounter because I, that person either nudges me toward be more like them to yeah. be more like them or maybe to react against them and in some way become like them in the opposite way. Yeah. Or I nudge them in the direction of humanity and compassion and so on. And, and that to me is, you know, that that's what that verse, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Mm. That is the picture that to me, gives me a goal to, to move toward. Well, Brian, uh, this has been incredible, but we are just about out of time and um, I could literally talk to you all day long. <laughs> so thank you for taking the time to come on and uh, for your friendship. And I, I am, I'm deeply grateful for that hermeneutics class that I had all those years ago that introduced me to your work. So thank you. Well, thank you and keep up the great work. Thank you. And I'll put your, the link to your book uh, in the show notes and encourage the world to buy it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much. All right, Brian. I'll talk to you soon. God bless. Bye-bye. What if everything we know is just a lie, is just a sign of the times? Just take off your disguise and look into my eyes and see.
Just look at my reflection in the mirror, see it clear now. It looks right back at me, but all I see on my face is a frown. Shouldn't I be happier? Been writing these songs all my life. Will I ever be sad?